Um, but when I really started writing more with my students, you know, for my own authentic purposes and not just to have an exemplar, um, that's a different animal. And that's when you start to encounter more of the struggles and when you feel more like a beginner, the way your students feel. And when you're struggling with revision, that's writing alongside your students. And that, I think, leads to a kind of empathy that is different from what we experience when we're showing them what to do as the experts, if that makes sense. Um, and so I would come in and I'd say, hey, I'm, you know, my kids would, would ask, they're like, Mrs. Messner, what are you working on right now? And I'd be like, oh, I'm working on this futuristic novel. And I'm really stuck on this one issue with this character. You know, you want to see what I'm, what I'm working on. And I'd put it up on the board and we'd talk through it. And um, I really think it was so powerful for my kids to see me struggle with writing. Uh, because again, the, they think, oh, you know, you're our teacher, you know how to do this. And and they get this idea that good writers don't struggle, that that, that struggling or, or wrestling with a revision is something that, <clears throat> that good writers don't do. And in fact, it's just the opposite, right? The best writers I know, I, I, I think, agonize the most uh, over, you know, how to get a scene just right or, or ripping something apart and starting all over again. So I thought that was really powerful for my kids to see, but also powerful for me as an educator as well, to remember what that feels like, right? To, to feel like a beginner and to have that ground not quite so steady beneath your feet when you're writing. Uh, and just to remember that, I think it made me a, a much more empathetic teacher of writing as well. Welcome back to Chalk and Ink the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and fourth grade teacher. Before we get into this episode with author extraordinaire Kate Messner, I want to congratulate Miss Messmaker for winning a copy of The Civil War of Amos Abernathy by Michael Leali. Miss Messmaker, thank you for retweeting Michael's interview on Twitter. And Michael, thanks so much for your generous donation. Miss Messmaker, please DM me on Twitter so that we can get you a copy of Michael's marvelous book. On today's episode with Kate, we talk about what happens when we share our writing process with our students, inviting our students to help us make our writing stronger, and taking and making time to prioritize our writing. Let's get started. Welcome, Kate. I am so excited to have you here on Chalk and Ink. This is going to be so much fun. I am sure that all of the educators and authors listening to our podcast know who you are, but sometimes I have students who listen to the podcast, and even though I have a ton of books of yours in my classroom, they might not know who you are, and also I have friends and family who listen. So if you could please introduce yourself to our listeners, I would really appreciate it. Of course. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's so great to chat with you today. Uh, I'm Kate Messner. I'm the author of uh, gosh, more than 50 books now for young readers. I write a pretty wide variety of books from uh, picture books like Over and Under the Snow and The Brilliant Deep to easy readers like the Ferguson Zeke series. I write uh, several chapter book series, including The Ranger in Time, Historical Adventures, uh, the nonfiction graphic uh, history series, History Smashers. 
aimed at unraveling myths we learned about history when we were young. Um, and then books for older readers too, like novels, uh, Breakout, Chirp, All the Answers, The Seventh Wish. So a little bit of everything. And of course, I also am a teacher. I'm a former middle school teacher, and I spend a lot of time now visiting classrooms and libraries and conducting workshops and things. So uh, your teachers know once you're a teacher, you're always a teacher. That's something that never leaves you. It's so true. And you have really done a wide range of teaching. And I think that's so fabulous and gives you just so much knowledge that you can share with us today here on the podcast. So I have a lot I want to talk about. Um, And I have to say, I could spend like probably five hours talking about uh, 59 reasons to write, but we don't have that time. And I don't (laughs) want to spend the whole time talking about that. Um, But I I will spend a lot of time on that. But I do want to talk about history smashers. I actually went to my local bookstore and bought five of the titles and took them with me on our trip to Maui. And I read several of them there, although I have to say I could not do plagues and pandemics while in Maui. I was like, "Ah, I'm going to wait on that one. That's that's a good good, good call there to be a break from plagues and pandemics when you're on vacation. (laughs) But I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about them. I mean, I think they have so much to offer readers. You have those really fun yearbook sections in there. You have um, places in there where you show readers a piece of artwork and you ask what's wrong with the history in this photo. You have the graphic panels in there. So I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about those books, how they came to be, how you decided what to include. What was that whole process like? Sure. So these are really aimed at promoting critical thinking in young people and older people too, quite frankly. Um, when I was working on the Ranger in Time series, this is a my series, my uh, fictional series about a time traveling search and rescue dog. Ranger's this golden retriever who can go anywhere in history where people might be able to use his modern day search and rescue skills. And um Obviously, there are uh, that book, that series required a lot of research. There are 12 books in the series about everything from the Oregon Trail and ancient Rome to, uh, you know, Viking Age Iceland and Hurricane Katrina and the Titanic, uh, Pearl Harbor, you know, uh, the D-Day, all different historical time periods. And one of the things that was so striking to me when I was doing research for the Ranger and Time books uh, was that so much of what I learned in history when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s was more myth than actual history. It was more this idea of, you know, oh, this is a story we like to tell instead of what really happened. And some things that did happen got left out of my history books entirely. And that really made me want to work on this new series called History Smashers. So these are graphic nonfiction. So think graphic novel, but everything is true. Um, They are sort of a hybrid. uh, So they're told with text, uh, lots of photographs and illustrations, and chunks of the story are told through comics as well. Uh, so really great for your visual learners, um, which I, you know, I am, so I appreciate that. And it's been really fun to create these books, but they're all aimed at unraveling the myths that we sometimes learn about history when we're very young uh, and sharing hidden truths, right? Some of the things uh, that are actually part of history that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable to talk about as well. So uh, the first uh, topics we've tackled. Obviously, the very first one was History Smashers the Mayflower, because 
Uh, you know, that's America's favorite myth, this uh, story of the so-called first Thanksgiving, which uh, I can promise you happened nothing like the way you learned when you were in preschool. Um, and so the goal of this series was to actually go back to the documents and go back to the actual history. What do we know? What are the facts? Uh, what's documented? And how did some of these wild stories get spun around what was actually true? Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about that in History Smashers, the Mayflower, obviously. Uh, we talk a lot about the story of the Wampanoag people who, uh, you know, were the people who'd been living in the area around Plymouth, Massachusetts for literally thousands of years before pilgrims uh, ever thought to cross the ocean. Uh, and really tell the whole story, a, a wider story of um, that period in that area of colonization. Uh, and from there, we went to Women's Right to Vote. That's the second book in this series, telling the story of the fight for women's voting rights, uh, and primarily in the 1800s and early 1900s up to the um, 19th Amendment, but also going beyond that, uh, you know, because uh, as you as you know, the, the 19th Amendment didn't guarantee voting rights for all. Uh, that happened much, much later, and it's a battle that's still being fought today. Uh, so we we look at that. We looked at the um, the heroes of history, or the people that we talk about as heroes of history. And of course, you know, no hero is perfect, and that's something else we struggle with sometimes. I think as Americans, we like our historical heroes to be heroes, and we don't want to talk about any stains on their reputation, right? So there are people who are very uncomfortable with talking about the fact uh, that, you know, most of our founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, uh, were slaveholders. Um, and also very uncomfortable talking about the racism of some of our early suffragists, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, women who, even as they fought for white women to have the right to vote, were actively fighting against black men having the right to vote for a period of time. Um, that's not something that I learned growing up, but I think it's really important for us to share those larger stories with kids, you know, including, uh, you know, the, the the parts that aren't so shiny and bright because, you know, so many young people are fighting for change in our world today and trying to do good work in the world. And it's a great reminder that we want to do that work in a way that doesn't cause harm to other people. So I think it's really important to be honest with kids about history. And really, that's what the whole series is about. So we've got the Mayflower, Women's Right to Vote. Uh, we've got Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Titanic, the American Revolution. Uh, book six is the one you left home on your trip, History Smashers, <laughs> Plagues, and Pandemics. That one goes all the way back to ancient plagues like the Plague of Athens and the Black Death of the Middle Ages, and then all the way up right through uh, things like tuberculosis and cholera and smallpox and uh, HIV AIDS, uh, all the way up to COVID-19, you know, the pandemic that we're, we're still uh, living through today. So uh, this is one that's been really interesting to talk with kids about, because so often when kids read history, they read it as something that's separate from themselves, whereas this is history that they're a part of, that they've been living through, and they have, you know, their own perspective on it and can make those connections. So it's been really interesting and gratifying to, to talk with kids about this book in particular. 
Yeah, I have a lot I want to go into there. So you mentioned going back to the original documents, and that's one aspect of the book that I think, or the series, I should say, that you do a fabulous job with, because oftentimes you'll break it down, like, what were they really saying here? And I think that's really important. It's important to show kids the original documents, but it's also important to be able to understand, you know, what they're saying. And so often, you know, when students see an original document, they'll shut down because they're unable to understand it either, either you know, they can't read the cursive, or even if they can read the cursive, the language is just, you know, it's obtuse for them. So I really like how you have those sections in the book. So thank you for including those. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was really important is to to take those actual historical documents and make them accessible to kids. So, um, you know, and to do it in a way that's fun and enjoyable, you know, too. Um, sometimes we, uh, you know, in the in the translation use, you know, really common friendly language and funny language. Uh, because, you know, honestly, some of these, you know, there are there, you know, there was one t- passage in particular that talked about, you know, the pilgrims and how they ate some some shellfish that made them, uh, you know, cast and scour. And, you know, it's like, look, we threw up and we had diarrhea. And it's like, <laughs> oh, the pilgrims had diarrhea. I can relate to that. You know, it's, that's that's funny. Right. I mean, right. If you're not yeah. a pilgrim, it is right. I'm sure at the time it wasn't that funny, but. Uh, you know, kids think that's, oh my gosh, that's, it's very humanizing. And we forget that sometimes that all of these people who lived through this history that's, you know, enshrined in our history books, our textbooks now, were actual human beings. And they had all the same, uh, you know, trials and flaws and, uh, you know, uh, you know, character issues that that we had and funny things happened to them and good things and bad things. And sometimes they got sick. And I think it's really important to humanize those people who lived through history. and. Um, translating those historical documents and and quotes from primary sources is is one way to do that. You know, definitely. And you also mentioned, you know, how our heroes don't have, you know, they they have many flaws. And I think that's really important too. That's also humanizing them, right? I mean, growth mindset, it's so important. We all make, we all make mistakes. We all have failures and it's what we do with those, what we learn from them, you know, that make us who we are. And you mentioned Susan B. Anthony, and I read a great uh, realistic fiction novel this year called Susie B. Won't Back Down. And, you know, the character happens to find this file in her teacher's desk, Susie B., and she thinks it's like just for her, but really it's about, well, it says Susan B., and it's about Susan B. Anthony, and she learns exactly what you were talking about. And so I think not only is it important to realize that, you know, our heroes are are flawed people so that we get the whole side of the story. But it's also important in terms of our own personal growth to realize that, you know, we don't have to be perfect. And I think so much of what we see uh, in society is this message that we have to be perfect. And that's another reason why I think your books are so powerful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I, I agree. That's important. It's interesting how much better kids do with this concept than many adults, <laughs> to, be, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I was one of the very last uh, author visits I did to a school before the pandemic really shut everything down was to this uh, pretty small elementary school in uh, in Vermont. And I was having lunch with a small group of second graders and uh, one boy was telling me how much he loves the biographies that his teacher, uh, his librarian, was putting on display. And I said, oh, I have a really good one for you that I just read. It's called Ona Judge Outwits the Washingtons by Gwendolyn Hooks. 
And it's about a woman who was enslaved by George Washington and she escaped and he searched and searched for her and she never got caught. And this boy looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, wait, George Washington had slaves? And I said, he did. He enslaved, you know, hundreds of people on his plantation in Virginia, um, both before he was president and while he was president. And he, he, he looked at me and his eyes got big. He said, I thought George Washington was a good guy. Yeah. I said, well, we know George Washington for a lot of the things he did that helped create America. You know, he was, uh, you know, he did, uh, you know, he was the general of the Continental Army that fought in the, the revolution and, and showed leadership there. And he was the America's first president. Those things are true. And it's also true that he enslaved hundreds of people on his plantation. All of those things are true. And the kid said, oh. And then he turned to his <laughs> librarian and said, did you get that book? Did you write that down for us? Because you should get that one for us. And she said, yeah, I already wrote it down. He's like, okay, good. And then we talked about something else, <laughs> Yeah, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot easier, I think, for kids to wrap their head around this idea that all of these things can be true, right? He can be pivotal in the creation of the United States of America uh, and still have, you know, have done these these pretty hideous things, you know, and not only did he enslave people, um, you know, he, he, you know, really twisted things around to kind of do an end run around uh, some states anti slavery laws. I mean, he was running people that he enslaved back to Virginia and taking them out of state uh, when when the capital was in Philadelphia. Um getting them out of Pennsylvania so he could restart the clock on their freedom, right? So he could enslave them longer and they wouldn't automatically be freed as Pennsylvania's law said. So um, it's worth knowing those things, right? It's worth looking at the whole picture and and being able to recognize, yeah, all of these things are true, right? And and um, I, those kids are very good about that and, and many adults are very bad about it, you know? Um, I've had... Um, you know, book challenges. Um, one of my picture books called The Next President is all about what presidents were doing before they were president. And uh, there's a, a line in the very beginning. It's a, it's a, you know, it's one line in the book that says, oh, John Adams was the only one of America's first five presidents who didn't enslave people. Um, and people have gone adults, again, never kids, <laughs> But adults have gone absolutely nuts over this line and saying, why would you mention that? Why would you mention that? And, you know, because it's true, maybe. Right. And I'm writing nonfiction and that's a part of America's story. You know, it's not a part that's particularly comfortable for many people to talk about, but it's a fact. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting, the discrepancy I think we we see between kids who are able to hold all these things in their heads at once uh, and adults who can be really fearful of facts sometimes. Well, that's why I work with kids. That's one of the many reasons why I, I work yeah. with children. They're just much more flexible in general. I mean, there are exceptions, but I would say in general, they're much more flexible and they're really curious and they, you know, they all have that passion for learning. And there are definitely adults like that too. But the great thing about, you know, being in the classroom every day is I get to see that every day from each one of my yeah. students. And Absolutely. that's just that's just so energizing. I have to say, the next president um, of the books that I have in my classroom that you've written—that's the most popular one. Really? So, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think I don't know. I mean, I think that the cover is you know inviting, and it's just it's really interesting information in there. 
So yeah, that that gets read quite a bit. So I'm really surprised people have challenged that actually. I didn't didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, it took me by surprise. It is one of the books that I get some emails about that uh, are are not that great. So um, yeah, shout out by the way. What was, you ta- mentioned the cover to Adam Rex is the illustrator for that book, and um, his work was just spectacular. I thought I was so pleased with the art in that book. Yeah, it's really engaging. I think and inviting. So wow. Well, well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you have that fact in that book, and I think you also have that too in the. Um, in the the American Revolution History Smashers book yeah, about John yeah, Adams. Yeah. Yep, we do talk about that, and we talk about Washington and Jefferson in that book as well. You know, both the um, you know the positive things that they did that that you know as, as far as the writing of the Declaration of Independence and and the fact that while Jefferson was writing the Declaration of Independence, he was enslaving people. So there's a real contradiction there, and it's um, you know important to talk about. It. It's a great conversation to have with kids. Well, it is. And especially, you know, with with the Black Lives Matter movement going on today, too. And I think this goes back to what you were saying about how kids oftentimes view history as separate from themselves. Adults, too, quite frankly, everybody. Right. But it's it's really not. It's always happening, you know, around us. So, um, yeah, I think your books, you know, lead to many different discussions for people. Thank you. That's always my hope. (laughs) So um, before we get into 59 Reasons to Write, which I'm just so excited about talking about, I wanted to talk about Fergus and Zeke and the 100th Day of School because teachers are always looking for new titles to read on the 100th Day of School. So I was hoping you could tell us about that. Sure. So Fergus and Zeke is an easy reader series. So great for kids who are just starting to read real short chapter books all by themselves and are excited about that and proud of it. Um, and uh, in the first book, they go, um, they're two classroom pets. They're two mice who are classroom pets in Miss Maxwell's class. And in the first book, they go on a field trip to the Museum of Natural History. So they're exploring the museum and climbing the dinosaur skeletons, which of course we would never do, but uh, having all <laughs> kinds of great adventures. Um, and then the premise of this series is they enjoy a lot of the things that kids love about school. So the field trips, they go the, to the Natural History Museum. Uh, in the second book, they participate in the school science fair with their their own spin on a science fair project. Uh, book three is called Fergus and Zeke and the Fields Day Challenge, and it's about the school fields day. It's a great one to share toward the end of the school year. Uh, you know, Miss Maxwell's class is all excited about field day, and Fergus and Zeke can't wait until they realize that all the activities and challenges are people-sized, right? And if you're a little tiny mouse and there's a human-sized kickball coming at you, you have some problems. So they have to come up with their own field day activities. And then that fourth book, uh, Fergus and Zeke and the 100th Day of School, uh, is kind of self-explanatory. Miss Maxwell's class is getting ready to celebrate the 100th day of school. And I know that's something that classrooms all around the country do and in lots of different ways with special challenges and projects. And um, so the kids in the class are all making projects and Fergus and Zeke are trying to come up with their own. Um, I'll tell you, it might I think my favorite chapter in this book is the one where um, the class is trying to write stories with exactly 100 words, which is harder than you might think. And so Fergus and Zeke decide they're going to write a story uh, with exactly 100 words. And um, it's probably one of the funniest chapters I think I've written in this series. It's, it's, I think, my favorite chapter in the whole series because they 
they finish in, you know, at, at a particularly suspenseful and perilous part of the story and they're out of <laughs> words. And so you, you don't get to find out what happens. But yeah, these have been really, really fun to, to, uh, to work on. And I'm, I'm heard from a lot of teachers and librarians who uh, shared this new book for their 100th day of school this year. So that was a lot of fun. That does sound like fun. This year I did something my colleague has done, which I had never tried, which was to ask the students to write about what they would be like if they lived to be 100 years old and just leave it a completely open prompt. So it was really fun to read um, the students' responses. And uh, the day they finished it was a day I was absent and I had the substitute just have them tack them up on the back bulletin board. And a lot of them had forgot to put their names on them, but it didn't matter. When I came back, I could still read them and I, and I knew who was who. Um, and that was really fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I'll tell you, it's interesting how the um, that question, uh, you know, sometimes I know kids are asked to draw a picture of themselves at 100 years old. Uh, I remember that from when I was growing up on the 100th day of school. And um, you know, I remember talking with my classmates and we, you know, people didn't live to be that old. And so, uh, you know, we were like, I'm not going to be around at 100. And, and these days, so many kids know people who are 100 or older, you know, or have grandparents who are, are close to that age. So it's really interesting how our, um, you know, life expectancy has changed that that assignment, too. Yeah, definitely. I My grandmother lived to be 104. She just passed in 2020. So I can share that with my students, too. And so I think that I don't know. Just, that makes it more fun to be sharing a part of, of my history with them as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing I I ask people on the podcast is how does writing affect your teaching and how does teaching affect your writing? And, you know, you have this beautiful statement, you know, in 59 Reasons to Write about how, you know, when... <laughs> you know, when you started writing as a teacher, it changed everything for you. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah. So I used to teach middle school language arts. I taught seventh graders on an interdisciplinary team. So with a science and social studies and math teacher and, uh, absolutely loved working with that age group. And, um, it was around that same time, actually the very first novel that I wrote, uh, was a, a regional historical novel set on Lake Champlain. And I wrote it because there was this story uh, about an event that happened in history on Lake Champlain involving, you know, British and American forces and Benedict Arnold and this, uh, you know, this, this uh, you know, sneaky escape from the British troops. And um, that really hadn't been dealt with in a children's book. It was mentioned in, you know, uh, in, in Kenneth Roberts' uh, Rabble in Arms, but hadn't been discussed in a kid's book. And I, I you know, thought this is such a great story. Uh, you know, I was actually talking with a museum educator. I said, there's got to be a kid's book that deals with this. He said, there's not. I said, there must be. And he said, there's not. And if you want it so badly, maybe you should write it. And I was <laughs> like, oh, that's a that's a thought. And so really that... Um, uh, very first book I wrote, which was published by a teeny tiny regional press, um, was inspired. It was a book I wrote for my students. And I uh, basically kept writing more seriously from there. Um, I'd always written my whole life, really, uh, growing up and and uh, was a journalist uh, after my undergraduate degree for, for years. Um, so writing has always been a part of who I am. But that's when I really started working more on novels and writing for myself. And uh, like all teachers, um, I had always written 
for my students, which is to say, you know, we're going to write persuasive essays today, and here is one I wrote to show you. Um, but when I really started writing more with my students, you know, for my own authentic purposes and not just to have an exemplar, um, that's a different animal. And that's when you start to encounter more of the struggles and when you feel more like a beginner, the way your students feel, and when you're struggling with revision, that's writing alongside your students. And that, I think, leads to a kind of empathy that is different from what we experience when we're showing them what to do as the experts, if that makes sense. Um, and so I would come in and I'd say, hey, I'm, you know, my kids would, would ask, they're like, Mrs. Messner, what are you working on right now? And I'd be like, oh, I'm working on this futuristic novel. And I'm really stuck on this one issue with this character. You know, you want to see what I'm, what I'm working on. And I'd put it up on the board and we'd talk through it. And um, I really think it was so powerful for my kids to see me struggle with writing. Uh, because again, the, they think, oh, you know, you're our teacher, you know how to do this. And, and they get this idea that good writers don't struggle, that, that, that struggling or, or wrestling with a revision is something that, <clears throat> that good writers don't do. And in fact, it's just the opposite. Right, the best writers I know, I I, I think agonize the most uh, over you know how to get a scene just right or or ripping something apart and starting all over again. So I thought that was really powerful for my kids to see, but also powerful for me as an educator as well to remember what that feels like. Right to to feel like a beginner and to have that ground not quite so steady beneath your feet when you're writing. Uh, and just to remember that, I think it made me a, a much more empathetic teacher of writing as well. Definitely. I mean, and another aspect that goes along with that, that you talk about in 59 Reasons to Write is fear, you know, and you talk about the two different types of fear, you know, the fear where you see a snake and you need to run, you know, to keep yourself safe. But then you talk about the fear that comes when you find yourself a about to break through an artificial barrier that you've set for yourself. And I think that is so powerful because in the classroom, you know, that's the kind of fear we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, the fear of, you know, being in danger from a deadly snake. What we're talking about is the, the fear, the need to overcome risks to grow as learners. And if we are actively writing when we're teaching, you know, we can share that with our students, the fears that we face, you know, when we're writing, which could be, you know, any number of fears. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, we think sometimes that our, our um, particularly talented writers uh, aren't experiencing this, but those are the writers sometimes, uh, it's interesting because our struggling writers obviously are going to be afraid to try things. But on the other end of that spectrum, we have our more gifted writers who really just want their A, right? And and yeah. might be capable of so much more and so many more interesting things were they not playing it safe so that you would say, well done and write the A on the paper and give it back and they can, you know, go home and put it on the fridge. And I think, I think writing with your kids that that model of a teacher of an expert so-called expert uh struggling and starting over and revising is really powerful to both of those groups in in different ways you know it's like well everybody struggles with this and and uh you know for your more gifted writers it's like oh wait 
gifted writers do, you know, spend a lot of time agonizing over things. They don't just create this one pretty thing and put it on the fridge and move on. So I think it's it's really powerful across the spectrum and just so, so helpful. Well, it is, you know, and you have, you interview uh, a lot of other writers in your book, 59 Reasons to Write. And then one, one of them said, oh yeah, I, I face that fear, you know, every day, you know, of not you know, being yeah. good enough. And I think that's something that happens a lot in the classroom. Kids are very astute, you know, and they recognize when someone has a strength in an area that they don't have, or they perceive that they don't have that same strength in. And then that makes them, you know, shut down. And so I think, you know, that's just another way for teachers to connect to students. And, you know, and I tell my students all the time, I said, I've been, I've been writing for 18 years, you know, and I have one published book. And so if I'm comparing myself to someone who's been writing for the same time and has, you know, X amount of books, I said, I'm, I'm not going to continue writing. I said, but I'm not writing, you know, it's not a contest. It, I write cause, because it brings me joy. And, you know, how can I become a better writer that day when I sit down at my computer in the morning before I go to work? It's not about, you know, what other people are doing. And so I think it just, it's just so important for everyone in the classroom because it demonstrates that we're vulnerable that we can grow and, you know, that we have so much to learn just like them. I think so. And I think a lot of teachers recognize that too, right? I I do a lot of workshops and professional development for educators. And quite often I'll say, okay, we know, open up your notebook. We're going to write right now. And, and the, the, you know, the prickliness in the air is palpable. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, like I signed up for this to get my three in service credits. And I was not thinking that I was going to be putting anything personal on the page here or like opening myself up. You can, you can feel the air change. And then we talk about that and we laugh about it and I'll tell some stories and you can then feel the air change again and say, okay, we're going to, we're all in this together. And I think that's such a, a, a powerful mood to create in the classroom, whether that's a classroom full of in-service teachers or a classroom full of uh, eighth graders or second graders. It's, it's just, um, you know, that, that uh, collegial collaborative um, atmosphere is so helpful in a writing workshop. Well, it definitely is. And, you know, your book, 59 Reasons to Write, it came from, from your summer program, uh, Teachers Write. And I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So for, gosh, I want to say it's 10, coming up on 10 years now. Uh, I think we started this in 2012 or so. Um, I have been running an online, uh, a free online summer writing camp for teachers and librarians. And uh, the secret of it is anybody can participate. It's especially for teachers and librarians, though. Um, But we have, uh, you know, regular writing prompts to try, um, revision activities. I have guest authors in. Um, So we have really a pretty wild archive now of lessons, and I keep the lessons up there forever. Uh, So if there's a lesson that you try and teachers write, you know, maybe it's a revision activity you do with a personal narrative or a short story, um, that lesson or that mini lesson stays online and you can revisit it with your students and share writing prompts with them. Um, But just just the act of sitting down to write for 15 minutes every morning in those summer weeks when we, we have a little bit more breathing room as educators uh, can be a, a really powerful first step if you're looking to walk the walk a little bit more in, in your teaching of writing. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I also do want to say, you know, 59 Reasons to Write is tight. The, you know, the subtitle is Mini Lessons, Prompts, and Inspirations for Teachers. But personally, I think it's a book that every author should have. I mean, the information in there is just fantastic. And I found myself when I was reading it, like noting things down to myself, okay, when I'm, I'm starting a new revision on a novel, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this activity. I'm going to do that activity. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do this yeah. activity. And so I think, you know, what's so powerful about that book is it really is 59 ways to become a better writer. I mean, sure, there's emotional support in there specific for teachers who are writing, but there's also just a lot of excellent um, strategies that one can use to become a better writer. Yeah, whether they're adult writers or young writers, I think. Um, that's the case, I think, with 59 Reasons to Write and also about my book, Real Revision, which, again, was was kind of written for teachers and librarians, uh, you know, who work with kids and, and on revising their writing. Uh, but really, it's a book for writers. It's a book entirely about the revision process and how different authors do it, right? How do you revise to make characters uh, richer and deeper? How do you revise to make a plot hum along more, um, you know, more quickly and and uh, more suspensefully? How do you revise for descriptions? How do you revise, uh, you know, for all these different purposes? And so, um, really, both of those books are are, are books for writers, all, all kinds of writers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So I was hoping, and I'm sure you've had many, but when you think about, you know, breakthrough moments in your writing career, what are, you know, wh what's one or two that come to mind for you? Um, well, honestly, every time, every time I start a novel, I'm all excited because I'm like, you know what, I've done enough of these now that this one, I'm just going <laughs> to use all of it. You're laughing because you know, right? Uh, <laughs> all the tools in my toolbox. And this one is going to be so smooth. And inevitably, I find myself just staring into this black hole of something I've never faced before. And it's, it's fascinating um, how every book is different. And every book, I think, it, I think Lori Haltz Anderson, um, is, I mean, I'm going to mess up her quote, but she said something to the effect of every book I write teaches me how to write that book. Yeah. And every book I write uh, along the same lines provides me with the tools that I need to write that book. Um, but you know, it's, it's so interesting. And in particular, I have a, a novel called breakout that is, um, very different from anything I'd ever written. And I, um, it's written entirely in documents. So the whole story, it's about, two inmates who uh, escape from a maximum security prison. And so there's this huge manhunt that changes the way these three kids see this small town where the manhunt is happening, this town they've called home their whole lives. Um, and it's written entirely in documents. So the whole story is told through letters, text messages, lists, uh, poems that one character writes, comic strips that one guy draws, petitions, news articles, um, all different documents come together to tell this story of what happened in this fictional town. And uh, that was a book that was really threw me for a loop because I had written the whole thing. I mean, 400 pages from the point of view is a traditional first person narrative from the point of view of the prison superintendent's daughter. And uh, when I showed it to my writer friend, Linda Urban, 
Um, you know, Linda, she's I an do. amazing writer. Uh, Linda said, oh, if this is so great. I wonder, did you ever think about telling this from more than one point of view? Because there are so many characters who feel like they'd have different perspectives. And I'm so curious about that. And as a writer, you know, you get feedback like this and you're like, huh, well, that's interesting. Except that I'm done, right? <laughs> my, my book has been written and revised four or five times. And like, I was thinking you were going to write back to me and say, yay, send this in. And, and that would, you know, you know, starting over with this new vision would literally involve starting over, like taking all the whole book and setting it aside and beginning again on page one. But the more I thought about it, the more that idea really just seems like the right way to tell the story. And so that was what I did. And when I tell kids this story, that you know, the, the the horrified gasps are audible, right? I took my 400 page book and I set it aside and started over. They're like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> like, how are you still here? Okay. Um, but it, it is, that was a real, I think, breakthrough moment for me because uh, it was such it was such a complete overhaul and I had had revisions before and I had started over before, but the final book in this case just looked nothing like um, so little of the first iteration remained. Uh, and it was so much better that that was a real uh, breakthrough for me as far as revision and being willing to think about bigger, braver revisions, I think. I love Breakout. That's another book in my classroom that goes out frequently. Am I misremembering or when I when I was at your retreat, did you say that you plotted out a lot of breakout from the different perspectives on an airplane ride? Or am I misremembering that? I did not do that on an airplane ride. And okay. I know that only because I had about a thousand index cards all over my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have done things on an airplane ride. Uh, How to Read a Story, my picture book actually is a product of a, a plane ride home from a conference where I was trying out a few different picture book ideas, but now breakout wasn't a, wasn't an airplane book. <laughs> so how did you, how did you organize those index cards? Well, because I'd written the first draft and, you know, the first five drafts really, um, from the point of view of a single character, I did have a basic plot line, uh, in place. And I started by, uh, marking up that manuscript and, thinking about what kinds of documents could be used to tell what kinds of the story. Um, so I ended up with a lot of paper index cards, but I also use Scrivener on my uh, laptop. And Scrivener, um, your many of your writer listeners will know, uh, is a program that will give you digital index cards that you can um, you know, brainstorm on and move around to move scenes around. And so I did a lot of that work as well. Um, and you can color code them. I'd have... Uh, you know, different colors assigned to different kinds of documents. So all the letters would be coded red and all the, the poems would be blue and the uh, news articles would be green or, or, or things like that. Okay. Did you try to have, um, you know, when you were working with all those different points of view, did you try to have like an equal amount or did you try to, from each character's perspective, or did you try to have an equal amount of all the different kinds of texts in there. I mean, there are just so many different kinds of texts. How did you decide, you know, was it going to be a text message? I know the one character is in poems, but, you know, you just have so many different text types in there. How did you decide which type of text to use and when to use it? 
Um, it's not really equal. So there are, I mean, there's one petition in the book and there are a couple of recipes, right? Uh, because obviously you can only tell certain very small pieces of a story with a recipe. <laughs> right. Um, so it's not equal in that sense. Um, I did try to make sure the primary characters' voices were balanced. But mm-hmm. other than that, uh, I really let the story and characters dictate the form, dictate the structure, which is to say what's happening in the story right now and how is that best conveyed? Is it, is it, um, you know, is it backstory that needs to be included in a little news article? Is it a conversation that would be best done through a recorded conversation, you know, that actually just gives us straight dialogue? Um, I really let the story dictate the structure in that case. So there is some balance. Uh, but if you if you counted things up, you wouldn't find, you know, that I was like, oh, no, I need two more things told with text messages. I didn't do it that way. I felt it was more organic to to let the story, uh, you know, take uh, chart the course there. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, you've done all this different kind of teaching. You've been in the classroom, you you work with teachers, you work with writers, you give workshops about, you know, how to have better school visits. I was hoping you could give us, talk about a breakthrough moment in your teaching, be it in the classroom or, you know, on your retreats or in your webinars. You know, what's a breakthrough moment you've had? Um... You know, I, I when I think to my last few years of teaching, especially, um, I was able to do a creative writing elective with some kids. Uh, and that was amazing because a lot of them were working on just, these were 12-year-olds just working on exceptionally high-level pieces of writing, you know, um, whether they were novels or short stories or poetry collections. And um, these were kids who had been in my class already and knew I was a writer. And they were the kids who would pop in after school and be like, what are you working on? Can I see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and who would talk me through plot points. And, you know, I, I would have kids, uh, you know, read for me if they wanted to. And, you know, they would they would read with sticky notes. And I'm like, hey, if you get bored anywhere, sticky yellow sticky note on that part of the manuscript, if you start to get bored, or if you're confused by something, stick this color, st- you know, post-it note on it. Um, so what I, what was a breakthrough for me is when I really started sharing more about my process, uh, just as little asides, whether that was in class or even after school, when kids came in or when they came in to visit during lunch, I saw kids taking ownership of that. And all of a sudden I wasn't telling them today in, you know, when we revise, we're going to do this activity to revise this. I would say, okay, today we're going to work on revising. And if you're stuck, you know, I'll come around or whatever. But I would see kids doing all these wildly different things uh, as part of their revision process that they had internalized. You know, they would have the sticky notes. They would have the highlighters. They would be, you know, sometimes we'd be revising and I'd see one kid over on the floor in the corner, you know, like cutting up her paper and trying scenes in different orders. And um, that was a real breakthrough for me. Just the idea that when we share so many strategies with kids, we're giving them that toolbox, you know, instead of saying, here's a screwdriver, try to use this screwdriver to fix what your manuscript needs. Um, that might be good, right? If, if the thing that needs to happen is something has to be screwed in, but that kid might need a hammer, right? And if you're saying we're all using screwdrivers today, that's, you know, going to be awkward at best. Uh, So I think providing just this wide range of tools, um, if you use them and model them and they're around a lot, 
kids are eventually going to internalize those and be able to choose the right tool for what they're working on. That was, I think, a, a big breakthrough for me. Okay. I have a very teachery question about that. So it sounds like that was kind of an organic process, like you were just sharing what was in your process or, or did you actually build the course around your creative process? Um, so the creative writing elective I did was very student driven. It was, it was almost pure writing workshop and, uh, it was I, it was a very small group. It was a gift to be able to teach them. But I think I had eight kids. Oh, and, wow. Um, yeah. And it was literally tell me what you want to work on. And this is what we're going to you know, this is what we're going to do. And so I would have, you know, kids that I, you know, every week we would conference and I would do mini lessons based on what they were working on. It was very student directed. And we had author, you know, guests. We had people Skype and we were using Skype at the time. And um yeah, it was it was it was very hands on, very um, very student directed. Um, my larger classes uh, obviously are a little, we're you know we're bigger classes and a, a wider range of kids. Um, and of course, you know, in in English seven, you all have to you know you have to show that everybody can write a persuasive piece and a narrative and whatever else. Um, so that was a little bit uh, more structured in that sense, and a little bit less um, less organic. Uh, but still, I think, you know, you see needs in kids as a teacher, right? You're working on something and you're like, oh, they're all struggling with this one thing. We need a mini lesson on that tomorrow. And then I'll go around and work with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really interesting. So when you were working with a small group of eight kids, you would see what a certain student needed and you would you would model that but using your own process. Very much so. Yeah. And I would also share with everybody, you know, because they, they, again, these were writers and these were readers and they would come in and, you know, they'd want to talk. They'd be like, what right. are you working on? What are you working on? Mrs. Messner, what are you working on? And I was just kind of one of the writers. So mm-hmm. we would mm-hmm. all talk about this and everybody would say, oh, you know what? I tried with that. And, and, um, well, what if you did this? And sometimes I would model on the, you know, on the, um, the whiteboard and, you know, with, with the, um, uh, you know, the projector and the, the smart board and just say, you know, so this is what I tried. And they're like, oh, you know, that might work for this piece that I'm working on. And somebody's like, yeah, yeah, I did this with this other piece. It was, it was, Sounds it was amazing. very much Kate, like any writing workshop you <laughs> would go to with adult writers, you know? Yeah, um, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it, where, where people collaborate and people, you know, try new ideas and teach one another. And that's, you know, I love writing retreats. Um and so one of the things that I've missed terribly during the pandemic is getting together with other writers uh, and having that quiet work time and that time to talk about your work. I was actually talking with some friends uh, yesterday about getting together for a retreat this June. And I was like, yes, please. And I'll just I'll fly <laughs> wherever you need me to fly. Just let's do this because it's been too long. It's um, there. There is there's something that happens when we come together. And, and for this particular group of kids, again, they were they were all really excited about writing and not all the same level by any stretch. You know, there were some really, really more advanced writers and some kids who had never felt great at it, but really liked it. Um, and that works, you know, when, when people share their process and you get to be in the company of other writers, it works with kids just as well as it does with adults. Ooh. 
I love that. I wish I could have participated. <laughs> I know what you mean about writing retreats. I'm so excited because my agent has organized uh, a retreat for her clients this summer, and I just absolutely, I cannot wait. Just, oh, how wonderful. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, I'm, that's great. Yeah, I'm so excited. So, um, you know, I know you're not, you know, full-time teaching anymore, but you know, I'd like, it'd be great if you could talk about, you know, how you did balance teaching and writing when you were full-time teaching. And also just, you know, I love how you talk about in 59 Reasons to Write about making time instead of finding time. Right. Making time and taking time, uh, which are not always the same thing. You know, we, we don't have time turners, so we can't, uh, uh, you know, invent more hours in the day, but we can, we can, we can claim time for writing and it doesn't have to be big four hour chunks of time. Um, when I was teaching, um, you know, I, I had a, a full teaching load. I worked with seventh graders. And um, so I was at school from pretty much seven or seven thirty until usually four, four thirty in the afternoon. Um, and my kids were, were young then. Um, so my first, gosh, my first six books probably were written between 9 p.m. and midnight, <laughs> largely, uh, you know, and occasionally I would I would write, you know, on weekends or, or during breaks or I would take a, you know, a, a day and, uh, you know, lock myself away at a coffee shop or whatever. But but most of my work, um, you know, my first few books anyway, um, they were written at night. You know, I'd start writing at nine o'clock after the kids went to bed and I would write for an hour or two or three if I could stay awake that long. Um Books can get written in small pieces. You know, they, they you don't have to have an eight day block on a Saturday. You know, with candles burning and absolute quiet and, and things. <laughs> um, I really do think you can teach yourself to write in uh, in different situations. You know, when my my daughter, I know your kids run uh, are runners too, um, but when my daughter would go to these all day track invitationals. Um, you know, you, you're there from nine in the morning until six o'clock at night and, and your kid is actually doing something for, for about four minutes. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, she was a high jumper, so she would high jump and then there'd be a 15 minute break and then she would jump over a thing again. And, you know, so I would bring my laptop and I would work and work and work. And my husband would be like, she's up next. I'd be like, yay. And I'd work some more. And, you know, you can, you can find all kinds of spaces, uh, to work, you know, but I, I tell people if you, if you give up one, one TV show, you've got a half an hour a day uh, of writing right there. Definitely. So what other advice would you give for, you know, teachers who want to write who are just starting out other than, you know, to make the time and take the time? Uh, make the time, take the time. It, I think, can be really helpful to uh, share with your family that you are doing this thing and that, um, you know, if you make a plan for yourself, whatever that plan is, I have friends who would get up at 530 and, you know, they needed to start getting ready for work at six, but it, from 530 to six, that was their time when they're going to be writing. And it can be really helpful and empowering and also a, a pretty good role model situation too, to say, hey, everybody, um, I've decided that this is a really important thing that I want to do. I want to get better at this. And so from 5.30 to 6 every morning, I'm going to be here writing. And, uh, you know, if there's an emergency, I'll be around. But I'd like, you know, I'd like everybody to kind of try to respect that time because this is really important to me. Um, I think sometimes, especially as moms, we can feel like that's a selfish thing to do, uh, but also it can be a really good model for kids, right? To, to say, 
you know, everybody deserves this time to follow a thing that they love and you can do this too, right? Um, I think sometimes as, as parents, when we don't do that, we don't have things that we're interested in, let our, let our kids see us doing things that we care about and are excited about, we also don't provide that model for them. Um, you know, to to claim time for the things that they love. So um, I think that can be really good on a few levels to to not only set aside the time, but to let people know and say, hey, could y'all help me out with this? And and uh, maybe remind me if I forget, you know, kids will like that. Mom, did you write today? Um, so <laughs> I think that can be really helpful, not only to have those little goals, but to share them with, with the people who live in your house. Um, I would say carry a notebook. That's something I tell writers of all ages, just because it teaches you to see the world like a writer. It teaches you to pay attention to small things. And that's, you know, even if you never publish a book, that's a lovely way to live is is paying attention and noticing things. Um, And then the last thing is, of course, to read and read and read and read, because everything we read makes us a better writer. No, that's so true. And, you know, the part about you know, being a good model for the people in our household, it's also being a good model for our students. You know, um, when I interviewed Erin Dealey earlier this year, and I know she's in your book, 59 Reasons to Write, you know, she said, we tell our students all the time, you know, follow your dreams, but then we don't follow our own dreams. And so I think it's, it's good modeling for the people in our household. It's also good modeling for the people in our classrooms. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. So you've written a ton of books that everyone should have in their classrooms, but I was hoping you could share some titles of books written by other people that you think people should have in their classrooms. And I know this is an impossible question, right? We could talk about this for like months, but like, (laughs) you know, what are some books that, you know, come to mind? I often find that usually there's one book someone mentions I haven't heard of, and I do try to get the books people mention uh, into my classroom. So what do you All have right. for us? So if we're talking fourth graders, right? Uh, yeah, I'm fourth grade, but you know, you can, t- if you are more comfortable talking seventh grade, you know, whatever you want. Oh no, like- we can, we can talk about fourth graders. Okay. So there've been a, a number of, okay. So I think you already have these, but one of my all time uh, favorite series for, for upper elementary is the Jumbies by Tracy Batiste. Mm-hmm. Um, I love these books. They're scary books, which kids sometimes can never get enough of. And they are inspired by these monsters from uh, Caribbean folklore. So they're absolutely wonderful and rich. And I just love it. So there's Jumbies, Rise of the Jumbies, and um, oh, third one. I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, it has like like hurricane gods and stuff. It's so cool. Um, so I love Tracy's Jumbies books. Tracy has a new book out called African Icons, 10 People Who Built a Continent. Um, and that is also amazing. It's she wrote it because uh, and this kind of connects with history smashers a little bit. Tracy noticed that every February in Black History Month, her kids were bringing worksheets home from school that talked about slavery and the civil rights movement and nothing else. As yeah. if that were the whole of Black history were, you know, Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks. Um, and so it really made Tracy want to write uh, about African history going back farther than that, you know, um, <clears throat> back before African people were enslaved, these people were were rulers and scientists and artists. And um, so this book looks at African history. Um, it, it, one of her earlier titles was When Africa Fueled the World. 
uh, and the history of Africa before slavery. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's history that was uh, not only hidden, but largely intentionally erased for many, many years. It's just a remarkable book. And I think it belongs in every classroom and library. Um, as far as other novels, um, I love Anne Ursu's The Troubled Girls of Dragomir Academy. It's an absolutely fantastic uh, fantasy with a, a wonderful feminist theme. I love Operation Sisterhood by Olabemi Sola Rude Perkovic. Have you read that one yet, Kate? I have not. I have not read a lot of these titles. I have read The oh, Jumpies, good. but I haven't read the other titles. Oh, good, good. So Operation Sisterhood is another one that's absolutely great. And uh, Linda Urban also had a new book out this year called Almost There and Almost Not. And it's about a girl who gets sent to live with her aunt for reasons that become clear as the novel goes along. But while she is living there, she meets the ghost of another great aunt and a ghost dog. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I, please, you had me at ghost dog, right? <laughs> exactly. <Absolutely laughs> wonderful. Such a great story. So those are several that I would recommend. Yeah, I have heard about Linda Urban's book twice now in the past couple of months. I was listening to your agent's um, podcast, Literati Cast, where yeah. she did the holiday book session, and I was listening to it like post-holiday. And so she mentioned Linda Urban's book there. And then just this week, I read a post by Michelle Knott that I saw on Twitter, and it was about, you know, middle grade novels that are shorter and, you know, therefore more friendly for students. And Linda's yeah. novel was also mentioned there as well. Yeah, not and not just this novel, but some of her earlier novels like Hound Dog True and A Crooked Kind of Perfect and The Center of Everything fit that category too. She's great for those those kinds of books. Yeah, and she has a really humorous voice too. She really does. All right. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to check out those, those titles. And um, I just hope, we can end by having you share something that brings you joy, uh, anything. It, it could be about reading, writing, teaching, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, I think I will share something about exploring because exploring is so closely linked to my to my writing. I was um, uh, spending a little bit of time in Southwest Florida right now, and I was out kayaking with my husband, um, and there's this, this island uh, not too far from Marco Island uh, that we like to explore at low tide. Sometimes you see hermit crabs and starfish and things. And so we were out there this morning and it was lovely when we were out right around sunrise. So that, that brought me some joy this morning. Yeah, there's nothing better than being on the water at sunrise. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty great way to start the day. Yeah, so... Well, thank you so much, Kate. This has been wonderful and I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Well, you are so welcome. All right. Take care. Yep. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Chalk and Ink. It's homework time. Debut author Jyoti Gopal will be joining us next episode to talk about her exquisite debut, American Daisy. None of her six books, yes, you heard me correctly, six books have been released yet, but you can read about her, her forthcoming books, and her educational philosophy on her website. If you have enjoyed this podcast, or if this podcast has helped you in any way, please write a review on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Reviews help other listeners discover the content. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brannon for Chalk and Ink's podcast art, and congratulate her again on her Seabird Honor for Summertime Sleepers. All right, everyone, take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.